measure one through six at the return from the captivity under the leadership of Jehovah and Jeshua. And they started the temple, the foundation stopped, and then started again and completed the temple in about 516. We jump in time now to Ezra 7 to about 458. And we're going to look at Ezra 7 through 10 today at this uh, time when Ezra led a group of people back to Israel from Persia. Um, you see the ancestors of Ezra in chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Now would somebody read 6 to 10? This Ezra came out from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, has given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the seventh year of He began his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to studying the servants of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees. Okay, so Ezra in verse 6, what do you learn about it? <laughs> yeah, and what was he skilled in? I'll tell you when, you, when you are really good in the word, in the law, it gives you a lot of opportunities, and he had them. And he had the blessing of God. The king gave him his request because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. What we're going to see in some of these chapters over these next two or three days is the vital importance of God's blessing and presence in success. And so God was blessing him and there were a lot of people who came back with Ezra. Uh, and, and again in the end of verse 9, why did he have success? God was blessing him. Now Ezra had prepared himself well. I love verse 10. When I was you guys' age, I remember giving a talk on Ezra 7 verse 10. Because Ezra had set his heart on one goal first. And what was that? To do what? Even before he observes it. Study. Now that's fundamental. You can't do what's right, and you can't teach what's right unless you know what's right. And we learn what's right in the book. And so Ezra is a great example because he set his heart on really learning this word. And that's exactly what we need to do. And, you know, I'm so encouraged by many of you. And if you haven't done that, be encouraged by your your fellow uh, campers. Many of you spend several hours a week on your own reading and studying the Bible. I know that. And not because your parents study to, not because anybody does Because you love God. You want to know the book. It's exactly the right thing you guys But you didn't want to just learn it. You wanted to learn it to be able to do two other things and what were those? 
teaching. You, you want to share with other people. You want to pass it on. And not only did he want to know it and to teach it, what else did he want to do with it? Obey it. Exactly. It's not enough just to know it and tell other people about it. We've got to live by it. Do you see why God could use Ezra so powerfully? You take a man who's really set his heart on learning the book, on doing it, and teaching it, that's a man God can use in very powerful ways in service. Comments or questions? I think uh, for the purpose of the people of Israel, for Ezra to it seems to me that he would be a big mansion in two different ways. I mean, they said before with the, with the yesterday, but it was Levi who didn't have the genealogy, so the records have been taken. They, some of them might know a lot of others might not be able to know you. So it's useful in that sense to have a scribe, but also they, even more importantly, Ezra is going to be a huge spiritual leader to the people, giving back to God. Absolutely. And that's exactly what Ezra sets his heart on doing bringing the people back to God as a spiritual leader. Now, the rest of Ezra 7 is a decree that. King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, basically authorizing him to come back, providing from even uh, uh, the royal treasury and others the sources of money for the offerings for the temple and all the things he needs for the house of God and all the supplies he needs for the trip uh, and protection, uh, a number of things that King Artaxerxes in his decree authorizes Ezra. And, and you've got the verbatim uh, text of this decree. It's Ezra 7 verse 12 down to verse 26. This part is written in Aramaic because the actual decree itself was written in Aramaic. So this isn't translated into Hebrew. This was actually in the original Aramaic text of this decree. Of course, Ezra had a copy of the decree, so he just writes it in here, and we see exactly the the orders of, uh, of Artaxerxes that authorize Ezra to go back and bring the people back to God. It's a really cool thing to see that. We're not going to read it because of time right now, but you can read it on your own. And uh, But I want you to read uh, what Ezra's reaction was to Artaxerxes giving him such a favorable decree. Ezra 7, verses 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to adorn the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and is extending loving kindness to me for the king and his counselors, and for all the king's mighty princes. Thus I, thus I will strengthen according to the hand of the Lord, my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go for me. Alright, so when the king writes out such a, a helpful order for him to go back and lead the people back to God, what does Ezra do? Thanks God. He thanks God. He praises God. Who would we have praised? Okay. Now I wonder, is that just a fan on or we've actually got the air on? You think that is the air? I think so. He couldn't have one without the other. 
You don't think so? It just didn't sound as loud. It doesn't seem as cool, but, you know. I don't know. You know, he doesn't praise the king. He doesn't thank the king. He thanks God. He sees that the source of the blessing here is the hand of God. Is God uh, turning even the heart of the king to do such a favorable thing? It is such a good thing when, when we recognize what the Lord is doing in advance. We don't just attribute it to luck or coincidence or to the you know, kind will of the authorities. But we see that behind all this is the Lord. Alright, comments or questions here on Ezra chapter 7? In Ezra 8, you have the list of the people that are returning. In 1 through 14, here's uh, you know just groupings of people uh, by different families, uh, people mostly out of the same families that had returned with Zerubbabel. And uh, it gets them all together uh, to, to go back. Now, this isn't nearly as big a group as what we turned the first time. But it is, it is several people that, that come back. Um, and with them, we read in verses 15 to 21. You can skip the date if you want to, but read 15 to 21. Now I assembled them at the river that runs to a half where we camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jared, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorid, Jorid, and Elnathan, teachers. I sent them to Edo, the leading men, at the place Hasafim. And I told them what to say to Edo and his brothers, the temple servants at the place of Hasafim. That is, to bring ministers to us from the house of our God. According to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mah, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah and Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his brothers and their sons, 20 men and 220 of the temple servants whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. Okay. Now, when he gets all the people together, what does he figure out? No Levites. Yeah, it's no Levites. Well, what they need of Levites, anyhow. Not priests. So much. So they think were the Levites that were not priests. What about the non priestly Levites? What would they do? What's their job? They did. Of course, this is post tabernacle, so they're not still doing that, but they did. What do they do now? They sang. They sang? Yeah, there were some of them that were temple singers. You're right. And they helped with the worship. And they helped with the temple service in general. There was another good job they had. Yes, they were the teachers of the law. Now, we simply don't realize what the Levites' job was. They were helping with the worship, and they were teaching the law. So what's going to happen if you don't have any Levites coming back and you're trying to lead the people back to God? 
You're going to kind of be handicapped, aren't you? So what does Ezra decide to do? You see what he's doing here? What? Sends a message to cast at the enemy servants. Yeah! Try to round up some Levites. See if they can recruit some guys to come. And actually they do. They were able to bring Sherebiah, a very insightful man, and his relatives, and uh, Hashabiah and Jeshiah, and their brothers and sons, and some other temple servants. So there's several that they get. And again, what does Ezra see as the key in these people coming? Look at verse 18. What's the key? the good hand of God that actually brought these people. Everything that Ezra does, he sees it as the Lord that's giving the uh, the blessing, and uh, he doesn't give credit to other things. So I really appreciate that about Ezra. And uh, so, they, with God's blessing, they round up some Levites and temple singers and so forth that they're going to need to go with them on the trip as well. Comments and questions. So were all scribes Levites? No. I don't think so. I think you could have scribes that were not Levites. Okay, so they, so is there a scribe was basically like a copyist of the law and often a student of the law. So it was the Levites would teach it, they wouldn't write that. Yes, that's correct. They were the teachers and, and worship uh, temple assistants. Not necessarily the ones that copied it. Could anybody else teach? Yeah. I mean, Deuteronomy 6 says, you ought to have the word on your mouth at all times and teach it to your children and so forth. Definitely. But but you had, you know, kind of a special class of teachers as well as just the fact that all of the Israelites ought to be constantly talking about the word of God. Kind of like we do today. You know, Ephesians 4 recognizes there are some, some special teachers, but then other passages recognize that all Christians ought to be teaching them. Other comments? All right, 21 to 23. Do not complain if faster at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek for him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all of our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king of truth from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorable, favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger and against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Okay. What does Ezra proclaim? A fast one. <laughs> Double ourselves for what reason? To get ready to ask any question. Not really to ask the quick any question. Ask God for safety. Ask God for safety and protection. Now, why would they need protection on this journey? They already have this trouble. Why? Well, there's been plenty of enemies. And I don't think it's just that. Uh, you know the whole story, it helps. 
But what would be a special reason they might really need some protection on this journey? Right, like glance at verses 26 and 27 and what they were carrying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! You might want a little protection, uh, like an armored car or something. You were taking all this stuff. And they're, they're target for thieves and bandits and, I don't know, train robbers or whatever. Uh, okay. trains, but, but you know, they must had corresponding uh, dudes back in those days. And, uh, well, what would you typically use for protection at this time? Guards. What? Guards. Guards, yeah! You know, you get an armed escort, you get a, you know, army division, and get all this stuff from the government to uh, escort you. Why doesn't Ezra ask the king for that? He's given him most everything else. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. Yeah, he doesn't need to, but not only does he not need to, what did he do? He says he told the king that God would help him. And he thinks, not if I ask him for a guard, it's going to be like sort of almost going back on what I said God could do for us. And so he does it. Now, that's kind of interesting because some of those things depend on the circumstances. We're going to read tomorrow where Nehemiah asked for a guard when he goes back and for protection and letters and so forth. So it's not like you could never ask for help from the king in that. But in this situation, Ezra feel like, feels like it's going to almost undermine what he told the king about where, where the Lord will take care of us. And so they fast and pray to God and really ask God's help in this so that they're protected on this trap. Comments or questions on this? Alright, so they do go back. Now, in 25 to, uh, to 30, they have all this stuff they're taking back with them. And so Ezra has them carefully weigh it out and give it to the men who are going to carry it back. Once they get there in 31 to 36, and they spend three or four days resting, then they weigh it out again. Ezra is very careful that he handles financial matters transparently. You know, we've got the record of exactly how much they carried, and we check it off as they turn it in, so that it's very clear to everybody, nobody took any of that stuff on the trip. And so they get to where they were going, God did protect them, um, and uh, that was that was a great blessing, that, that God was with them in that, and they worshiped God in chapter 8, verse 35. So, we get Ezra and his group and all the stuff back to Jerusalem. Do you have comments and questions on anything for the end of Ezra 8? Yes. Um, it says in verse 33 that they weighed out this, this, this materials in the house of God. Yes. Is there some, some importance to that? or what's the... Well, I mean, this is where it was going. And I don't imagine, when we say in the temple or in the house of God, at this period of time, we wouldn't necessarily mean like in the holy place, but in some of the courtyards around there. So that was a logical place to weigh it. They come from that place, weigh it out, and, and, and give it for the temple. Other comments or questions? Okay. What I really want to focus on most is chapter 9. Chapter 9 is, wow. It's quite a chapter. It's not very long, but it's quite a chapter. 
So, would somebody read verses 1 to 4? Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests, the Levites, have not separated themselves from the people of the land. According to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they had taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that they, so that the holy race has intermingled with the people, peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Alright, now, Ezra gets back there, and some of the leaders come to him and tell him about a problem. What's the problem? Yeah, the people have been intermarrying with the people of the land. Well, what's wrong with that? God specifically said not to marry the people of the land. Well, why would God have said that? So they keep turning to idols. Exactly. Somebody said in one of the talks or something about, about the, the uh, evil companions corrupt good morals. And there's such a danger of being influenced. You marry these pagan women, and there was the danger of them uh, turning the people away from God to idols. Did that ever happen? Yeah, Solomon. Solomon, boy, he's a, a bad example of that, isn't he? You know, he was the wisest man in the world, but he let the influence of his wives turn him toward even building temples for idols. It's really bad. And so Ezra gets back and they come to Ezra and they say, we got this problem. All of these people, so many of these people have come back and intermarried with these foreign women. And Ezra hears about this and what's his first reaction? Yeah, he tears his clothes. You know, we've got lots of clothes. They didn't have so many clothes back then like we Really amazing. But if you were in Brazil, like I go, they don't have closets mostly. They don't really need closets. You only got a couple of change the clothes. What do you need a closet for? So you can imagine what it was like to tear their clothes. I mean, that was tearing up something really valuable to them. It was a sign of grief. What else did Ezra do? Something you don't normally find. <laughs> Pull the hair out. Pull some of his hair out. Hair out of his head and out of his beard. <laughs> Now, I've heard of people that get so upset they pull out their hair, pull their hair out, but usually we don't mean that literally. But I think about that literally, Ezra was so overcome with grief, he yanked some of the hair out of his head and out of his beard. And what else does he do? He sat, yeah, amazed in the New York Standards of Paul. He's just, he's just overwhelmed. He's grief-stricken. This really bothers him. If we are people who respect God, we are overwhelmed with sin. It causes us to be appalled. It causes us to tremble. It causes us to be horrified. Ezra's just gotten back here and he finds out this and he's just overwhelmed and he's grief stricken. It's not even his sin. 
gets the sin of these people, his people. But he's just so upset by it. This is a, the kind of reaction we need to have to sin among God's people. Comments and questions? What we have next is Ezra's prayer. This is a wonderful prayer. I bet you've never prayed a prayer like this before. So I want you to listen to the prayer. I want you to think about what you see in this prayer. What's it talking about? What does he say in the prayer? And what can you think, what can you learn from this? So 5 to 15. At the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robes, when I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands and the my God. I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you. My God, our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our has grown into the heavens. Since the days of our fathers, since then we have done a great deal, and have done with our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands. But now for a brief moment, the grace has been shown for our God to lead us to speak with him and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may find in our eyes and grant us the way we find in our bodies. We are slaves, yet in our bodies our God has not forsaken us, that instead of loving kindness to us and desiring his aversion to give us the divide to raise up in the house of our God, to restore its rulings, and to give us a reference to the Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded. Look on you, your servants, the prophets, and the land which you have possessed, and the land of the unholiness of the peoples of the land and their abominations, which are very firm and too late. Now do not leave your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, and you may be strong to the good things of the land that they have inheritance in your sons forever. After all that has come upon us, for our people gives our good since you, our God, have rewarded us less than we deserve, and given us the skip of the things that shall we again break the commandments of our children. Yeah. But what does he call it? Yeah. 
And they're lazy. Look at verse 6. Oh my God, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our head, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And he keeps talking about us and our great guilt and our sins. Now, Ezra just got here. Had Ezra married a foreign wife? It wasn't his sin then. Why is he confessing our sins? Isn't that interesting? What do you see him doing in that? He expresses unity with people and how he cares for them. Yes. It's, it's like he's identifying himself with his sinful countrymen and he feels and shares the guilt with them even though he personally had done nothing wrong in it. But he is horrified as if it were his sin. I think that's interesting. Don't you? What would we tend to say if there were a group of people we were associated with where some of them had committed sin. Yeah, exactly. Sure, I'm glad I'm not like them. God, remember me, I'm, I'm not like they are. Ezra is God. Oh, our guilt, our sins, oh, we've done so badly. You never see him separating himself and saying, they've done badly. There's a lesson. How many of us would say, you know, the church I go to, you know, those guys down at my church, they're not, they don't do very well. They're this and they're that and they're the other thing. Ezra would say, we have this problem. Now I understand that God's judgment is individual, and there were some, there are some passages like Revelation 2 and 3, where God will condemn a church but single out certain individuals as people who are worthy, even though the church itself is not. So there's a truth in that also. But I really think we need more of this sense of identifying with the people. Think about Jesus. How fully did he identify with us? He became a man, and he took our sins on him. We want to be like Jesus. We're not going to be this. Well, those people at my church, they have this problem. What's going to be our problem, we confess? What do you think? Well, is it kind of like um, he's taking some of the responsibility for that? Maybe he hasn't done enough to help out in this? Maybe so. Maybe so, although he just got there. <laughs> But maybe so. What else do you see in this prayer? Something that Emily wasn't quite right. What does Ezra not do in this prayer? He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. What does he ask? Yes, he confesses their sins. What does he ask? Request of God. They do not give uh, regards to their sons or children 
Well, he's quoting the command. Yeah, that, that's what God has commanded. But what does he request of God in this prayer? What petition does he make of God? Well, he knows what God has already given them. He does. He talks a lot about what God has done and God's mercy and grace. But what petition does he make to God? Do what? He asks him, I don't know if he asks God to punish him. Yeah, not quite. He says in 13, after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you are God have required us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escape remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction? So there's no remnant or any escape. I think he's like almost lamenting. God, I mean, I, and I can't, I mean, you just be angry with us. I mean, you know, he just feels overwhelmed with the guilt. The truth is, I don't think there's a single request in this book. I don't think he even, he doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't ask for grace. He doesn't ask for anything. This prayer is 100% what? Confession. That is something we need to think about. I don't know how it is. And uh, in verse 9, in the later half of that, he says, uh, to give us reviving the race of the house of the walls, he's asking God for strength in order to build God's house again. I don't think so. Look at what he's really saying. You, know, you have to look at this. Some of it looks like this, but look at 8 and 9. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escape remnant, and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes, and grant us a little revival in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Really what he's saying is, God has been so generous to us. God has done all this for us, which just aggravates the guilt. When you look at how, even after they've been in captivity, God had given them so much grace and mercy to bring them back and to do all this, and we, we turn around and blow it like this. So what he's really doing is just saying, it even makes us more guilty because you've been so good to us. So we really need to think about confession of sin more in prayer. I don't know how it is in your church, but in the church that I'm a part of, we don't do well at all publicly confessing sin. I mean, we don't hardly ever in our public prayers confess any sin. Maybe we confess, well, God, we're sinners and we need your help. But as far as really pouring out our heart in grief and confession, I don't hear it. That worries me. What I really, I think we ought to be doing that publicly. Ezra was here. But it also worries me to think, do you suppose that privately we don't do that either? How, how close can we just confess our sins? Now I know, okay, God, I'm sorry I messed up on this. Please forgive me, please, please be merciful to me, and, and don't let me have to think about this anymore. You know, or whatever. But as far as just really pouring out our heart in grief and repentance and confession to God, I think Ezra's a great example. 
it, if someone betrayed us or, or did something really bad, and they're telling us about it was just relatively quick and brief, kind of going over that was just so they could then get our forgiveness. As a result, we feel like that was very satisfying or that they really appreciate it. But uh, I mean, as we're here, obviously has a relationship with God where he sees it's really important to just dwell on really what's happening. Uh, well, I think mean, like we would do in, in a regular relationship, uh, we have a Excellent point. Well, like we talked about a couple of chapters ago, how Nehemiah and Ezra studied, or sought God's voice so he could hear and teach it. And I think, you know, many times we kind of think, well, I'll, I'll do that when I really need to. Right now, I'm okay in my life. But uh, Ezra, this is the time that it actually paid off. It's like all his studying, he now used that to do his wonderful prayer to God. Good point. Yeah. Anything else? Five, chapter 10, verses 1 4. Now while everyone was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered with him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shishaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Edom, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who know about the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Give good courage and do it. It's interesting how Ezra's response provoked the response of the people. What do they say? Let's make a covenant to the Lord to send these wives away. If it's wrong, then we need to repent and get rid of these foreign wives that we are are being unfaithful to the Lord with. It, 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 it amazes me the impact that Ezra had. That's a lot for these guys to say, let's get rid of our foreign wives. But they see Ezra's grief his prayer of confession, a prayer of confession, and they're moved, they're grieved, and, and they're brought to their knees, and they say, let's act. Let's we'll make a covenant that we'll get we'll we'll, we'll end these relationships with these four wives. Which is exactly what they do in this chapter. Comments and thoughts, yes. Do they permanently uh, get rid of them or do they just not uh, have any more? No, they, they actually uh, end the relationship with these wives. And in fact, you find a list of the ones who did this in verses 18 to 43. They sent away the wives and the children. I don't know if that'd be considered adultery, but they were sinful marriages. Would be a parallel in that sense to the day when someone's in a marriage that God considers adultery. It's a sinful marriage. The right thing to do is to end the marriage because it's sinful. So this was sinful on a different principle. Sinful because they were married to uh, foreign wives. But when we're in a sinful marriage, we've got to end. It. Yes, Mark. That's an excellent point. I agree with you. 
asking for forgiveness before you repent is premature. Yeah. Other thoughts? God is never pleased with us just feeling sorry. You know, in, in Jeremiah, there are points where it's either Jeremiah himself or the people say, we're really sorry, we're really sorry. And God comes back and condemns them all over again because that's all that they were willing to do. It isn't until the people say, we're really sorry, and this is what we're going to do because we're sorry, that godly sorrow leads to Good point. So they respond to the grief with repentance, which is exactly what we have to do. Changing the behavior. Ending these, these sinful marriages. Other comments? Yes, Alan? I was kind of thinking about, you know, something that keeps us from mourning over our sin and stuff like that. It's just um, maybe something that was um, it's just our self-indulgent um, attitude or uh, complacent attitude. I kind of already talked about that. How you know we really don't feel like we need to. You know we're comfortable. Everything's fine. You know I have all I want. Um, it's not really that big of a deal. Whatever. And just move on and not think much about it. Yeah, when things are comfortable in our life, it may not even bother us that much that we've hurt the Lord. That's a real shame. Thing Ezra did, uh, he did sort of like a leadership thing through his actions. He didn't say anything. He just was praying, confessing. So we, can, we don't have to say anything to edify others. We just really And prayers can edify others, and we should think about that. I do think Ezra in his prayer had his audience in mind. I don't think that's inappropriate. Prayer must be sincere, but it's not wrong to seek to stir others up by what we say in our prayers. Okay? Any others? Yes, that one. Um, I guess, I think something that really stands out to me that I think is really good is how, and it was already mentioned, but how he was so upset about this sin. Just the fact that, and I think sometimes it's easy in our society to become callous to sin, not just our own sin, but even like the people around us in our congregation. Like, I haven't always been as upset as I probably should have been, when something really terrible happened or they made a mistake and I was just kind of, I, it was almost like, you know, that happens to people every day in our world. And I wasn't as affected as I should have been. And I think it's easy to become callous to them. And I think we should just absolutely loathe it. And we should be really upset and yeah, be like him and just cry when we realize that there's been sin in our life. Excellent point. We become nothing to it. It's just like, we just sort of accept it, whether it's in our life or in the life of people in the congregation, in our own lives, we're like, we sort of expect it. We're just sort of part of it, you know? And so we don't really renounce it. We just say, well, you know, you know, we all sin. You know, kind of laugh it off, but we do that with people in the congregation. It's just like, well, yeah, you know, it happens. And Ezra took it seriously, though. I think going off of what Emily said, I think one of the big traps you could fall into is saying, what we want to do is God says, no, but, oh, well, I can do it now, forgive me later. You know, and that's, and that's part, that really defeats the entire purpose of the, of the whole plan of salvation, because the idea of plan, the plan of salvation is so that you can give your life to God. When you're saying, you're saying, oh, well, I can do some, you know, we should for granted how merciful God is as a king and as a judge. I mean, just for one example, if somebody had a king who tried to backbite him, tried to kill him four or five times, I doubt he had 
just looking around. Yeah, we've sinned much more than four or five times. And he probably would have been away from that for the first time. So, so that is our bell. What they do here is they put away those four ones. You've got the list of it. They act on that promise. It takes them a while to investigate the cases, determine which wives have been truly converted, which haven't. And then they act and they do what, what the Lord said to do, what, what they committed themselves to. My excellent class, what you think about that? Go back and read Ezra 9 every once in a while and think about how we ought to react to sin in our lives. Thank you for your attention and eagerness in spite of being tired. I appreciate that a lot. God bless you. Have a good day.